Hello, everyone. I'm Peter Burson, and he's Joe Willard. Say hello, Joe. Hey, hello, Joe. Most of you podsters know what Joe does. The jury <laughs> is still out with regard to my duties. Anyway, this is another edition of Money Talks and Bullshit Walks. Philadelphia from 1980 to present. Green to green, green to Kenny. Um, guys. Mrs. Mrs. Podster is laughing. There's no help. Well, we were back from our Festivus hiatus. And just a quick update for this for, for you. The second part of our podcast and discussion regarding unions with Lou Egger remains missing. Apparently, our reward money has been ignored. Anybody out there who knows where it is or can lead us to the tape, it would be nice. But Joe and I decided the, the reward money is off the table. Joe, Mrs. Potster has raised the question, if the podcast is called Money Talks and Bullshit Walks, she wants to know why we aren't making any money, which is a pretty good question. So I told her she should get her own damn podcast. I thought my answer was amusing. She didn't really like it. What did she think? Yeah, what did she think about that? What did she think? She called our lawyer, Bombastic Bushkin, who was drawing up the paperwork for her own damn podcast. Which, that'll, cost, that'll cost because he's retired. He needs his money. Which I'm told is titled My Own Damn po Podcast That Makes Money. Now that's clever. So... I have to say, this is bad. We only have one computer, and she has prime use of it. Use of it, and, and and the way it works here at the MTBW household is, what's hers is hers, and what's mine is ours. Anyway, she needs the computer for work. I got an appointment to use it from eight thirty to nine, maybe nine thirty, depending on what bombastic Bushkin's contract says. By the way, over the holiday, Bushkin has left the firm of Dewey, Cheatham, and Howe. He seems to have turned into some sort of slip and fall attorney from South Florida. You get a lot of money working for certain clients down there. I still trust him. Anyway, last I spoke with Bombastic Bushkin, he again asked me to emphasize, we're not journalists. We're not historians. We deal in urban, le urban legends. And if the truth comes out, so be it. You can look at us as a bunch of friends sitting around some sort of damn flipping Zoom camera and talking trash about the city that loves you back. The land of the giants, as former Inquirer columnist Steve Lopez wrote on more than one occasion. Which means we should get him on a podcast in the future, right? Yeah, but Joe, we got to move it along. My computer time is winding down. Mrs. Potster is tapping on her Fitbit watch, and she's telling me what I already know. Back to the business's hand. By uh, 1991, Rendell had finished his second term as DA, and he ran for governor and lost in the primary. Wilson Good was finishing his last term as mayor of the city and county of Philadelphia. But Rendell, nevertheless, decided to run for mayor. And he had the support of major employers, business leaders, and obviously the politicals. One of the things that Rendell really wanted to do was cut the wage tax. In fact, he wanted to call, have all the taxes cut. So did the business people. But the wage tax was viewed and is still viewed 
as a job killer. Bob Buster's just as true. That's just as true today as it was then. Philly is taxed to the max. The city wage tax is what allows the city to pay for programs and operations that are vital to the city. But to beat a dead horse to death, Philadelphia is a city and county all unto itself. Its ability to spread tax money from wealthier groups to other citizens is next to zero. In case of you podsters don't know, like the the listener in Columbia. What? What was that? A listener in Columbia? Columbia, Columbia, Ohio? That's Columbus, Ohio. Columbia, New York? (laughs) Yeah. What Columbia are you talking about? Isn't Columbia University a public school? Not one I can afford, that's for sure. Well, then maybe it's Brown. Providence, New Rhode Island. Ooh, yeah. But you don't you're, have any- you're referring about we have somebody in Columbia, South America, who listens to our podcast. Is that yes? Correct? And I think they need to know about the wage tax. And do we know who this person is? No, you're in charge of finding out who people are. No evidence yet. We'll we'll be working on that, sir. Maybe we should call Colombo in. Did he pass away? He, so did the guy in Colombia. You don't know if he's Chavez. Sorry to the guy in Colombia if you're still listening. Hey, that Chavez guy might have uh, stolen Lou Acres' tape. I'm not going down there to find it. Me neither. We digress. The wage tax works like this. If a person lives and works in the city, they're subject to the wage tax. If a person lives outside the city and works in the city, they're also subject to the wage tax. Not as high as the city residents, but still they're subject to it. It's nice that they share their wealth with us. Other cities have wage taxes, but they're not the percentage we have. At least not it's not used to balance the city budget. Our wage tax is about 4%, I think. But the bottom line is in the 80s and 90s, the middle class and upper middle class, they did not want to pay for schools whose infrastructure was decrepit and doing a poor job in simply educating the students, at least by the standards of successful schools, the ability to perform well in the three R's, reading, writing, and arithmetic. And of course, that had two effects. It lowered the receipt of tax funds that the city received, and we ended up, and we still do, churn out a lot of minimum wage workers. And the wage tax also simply led business to move outside the city, thereby eluding the city's wage tax altogether. It obviously made the suburbs wealthier, which meant, well, you potsters have enough of imagination to figure out the impact it had on Philly. So the tax, the wage tax was in place during the 90s. The problem was that the tax was being imposed on one of the poorest urban populations in the country. So we're not getting the Ray me, there was not a large enough tax base to truly balance the city's budget. I could go on. Well, I guess I already have. I think you have. Hey, Randell's opposition in the primary was Lucian Blackwell. He was a district councilman from Philly, West Philly, I believe. And Blackwell was one of the participants in a turf war with other majority black elected officials from other areas or neighborhoods in the city. The war was most intently fought with Northwest Philly politicians who were led by Marion Tasco, Jerry Mondesire, and Councilman George Burrell. There was others. Burrell was a candidate for mayor that year. The other candidates in the race 
case was Peter Hearn, who was the former chancellor of the Bar Association. I'm not sure what his target voters were, but Hearn did get some votes. But Rendell had run for district attorney twice, he, citywide. He was, no, he was a known quantity. He was a tough prosecutor who related well with the city people. And he knew the political landscape, and he knew how to win, and he knew where he needed to get votes. A little bit from West Philly, a little bit from Northwest Philly, stumped from centered city. And I don't think it's any big deal to know this, but Randell simply owned the vote in Northeast Philly. The candidates simply had no connections to the to the Northeast electorate and the people up in the Northeast platforms, his positions, they just didn't resonate in the Northeast. Renzel ends up with a citywide base, to use the overly used term. It's no secret, Rendell won the primary with 49% of the vote. Blackwell was second. He got about 27%. Morell got 15%. Peter Hearn got around 9%. That's how many lawyers there are in Philadelphia. You know what they say, first thing we do is kill all the lawyers. So the vote's, the vote's got to be down from 9%. That's right. Anyway, he didn't get the plurality of the votes, but it was close. The Republican primary for mayor was contested for the first time in a long time. And that, my friends, was news. The result of the election was not a cliffhanger but it did have death and momentary loss of employment. Castile, Ron Castile was the sitting DA, had won a long shot campaign as the public and for district attorney. And the way I understand it, the myth is that Castile really didn't want to run for mayor. He had wow. a job. He didn't. Uh, he had the job he wanted. He wanted to be the DA. He'd been a prosecutor for most, if not all, of his legal career, and he was a tough career prosecutor. He had lost a leg in Vietnam, and there are stories, legends, whatever you want to call it, of Castile trying waiver trials. Joe, do you know what a waiver trial is? Not a clue. All right. A waiver trial is a trial without a jury. So this judge sits and decides the law, the facts, and if found, renders a verdict. And if guilty, imposes the sentence. Now, legend has it that Castile trying cases in City Hall and late in the summer at night, taking off his prosthetic leg and putting it on council table and trying cases. So that's that's the legend. But in the end, Castile was convinced by the chair or I guess the, the titular head of the Republican Party, Billy Mann, to run. Billy Mann had been and his family had been running the, the Republican Party here for 30 or 40 years. I believe he took over from his father, uh, who was a sh the sheriff. They called him Boss Mann. I think his real first name was. In fact, to this day, there are Mann's deeply involved in, in Republican Party politics here. The asphalt company, right? Right? They go around and fix the streets. That's what you say. General Asphalt? General, that's right. General Asphalt, along with Kelly for Brickwork. There, as I said, there's means all over the place still to this day. Mike, uh, I think is his son. He is sort of the titular head now of the Republican Party. There's another man who, not active in politics, uh, was elected as a municipal court judge. In other words, Republican power power base has been run by the Mayans for close to 4 billion years here. Going back to 91, 92, 93, but most particularly Castile, and he had run for citywide campaign, a campaign, and won, which, as you know, it was no small, it wasn't a small feat. He was popular. The run for mayor 
he had to resign as district attorney, what we call resign to run. This city charter, that's the constitution of Philadelphia, prohibits a person from holding elective office while running for office, other office. In essence, you have to resign to run. Joe, you got any thoughts on resign to run? Uh, it sounds like legal double talk, and I don't think Philadelphians really appreciate that much. Well, okay. Anyway, when Castile resigned to run, he was in essence out of a job. And Castile was the Republican Party's endorsed candidate for mayor. He had opposition in the primary, and that opposition was Frank Rizzo. Rizzo had left the Democratic Party in 87 and run against Wilson Good. And I think we've talked about that. We know that Good won, and we've been through that campaign in one of our podcasts. I really don't know which one. It's there in our swelling archives of MTBW. Reposters can look it up. Or, Joe, where in the world can they find our archive since the, you signed on to this bo- voyage to the bottom of the sea? You can tell everybody. Yeah, we have 20 episodes out there. So they can see them all from Google Podcasts or Spotify. There you go. We don't get any money from them either. Neither. Anyway, Rizzo, you know, he ran his basic campaign, which was to basically to accuse Castillo of this, that, and the other. And to remind voters, he was the guy who would stand up for their interests. Made veiled insinuations regarding race, like another guy we know. The, cla- the, the election was was classic. Rizzo. There was a third man in that race, Sam Katz, and he was also a D who turned into a Republican. Katz was pretty wealthy and wealthy enough to pay for most of his campaign, which meant he didn't have to run around and do a lot of fundraising, which made him or allowed him to speak his mind, so to speak. Don't get me wrong, Katz still needed money. Shit, I need money. Money money talks and bullshit walks. That's what they say. But Katz... I guess you could view him as a, I guess, a progressive Republican. What the hell is that? Yeah, we don't have them anymore. Today, his position, I I think, would be viewed as borderline socialist. So anyway, Castile was the favorite, but Rizzo found enough disaffected voters and he wins. We know that. Let's, but let's take a, a look at, at r- the numbers a little bit. Rizzo got 36.5% of the vote, roughly 47,500 votes. Mm-hmm. Castile got 35% of the votes, which was roughly 46,000 votes. But Sam Katz got 28% of the vote. That's 36,700. So if you look at it, Katz votes cost Castile the election. And I'm, I'm saying that because you got to figure that Rizzo was, uh, shall we say, a known commodity. Nobody was really undecided about Frank. That, you can just argue that Katz cost him the, the Castile the election. But had Castile won the primary, that would have been like a battle royale. Rendell and Castile had both worked together in the DA's office, I think under Arlen Specter, but don't quote me, maybe, maybe Emmett Fitzpatrick. Rendell had been, uh, may have been uh, Steele's boss when he became DA. I'm not sure, but he could have been Castile boss in the homicide unit. They were both pretty tough prosecutors and saying who was tougher is is a waste of MTBW's time. Yeah, remember, Mrs. Podster has me on a minute load. So anyway, as they say, what should have happened, happened. And Rizzo was the R's candidate until, well, I think, yeah, in September 91, Rizzo died on the can of a heart attack. Uh, Castile was out of a job. The Republicans were then left to nominate Joe Egan or John Egan. I'm not sure which, uh, but that was the guy that they nominated for candidate mayor. John Egan, right? 
John Egan. There was a Joe Egan too, but I don't Joe know. Egan? Yeah, I'm not sure where Joe fits in. Anyway, Rendell ends up the 91 election as the mayor. So he's sitting on top of the world. He's got what he wants. So I wanted to save this for some sort of a dramatic ending, but I decided not to. Okay. Bear with me. States and cities by law or statute have to balance their budgets. The United States government does not. They don't have to come up with colorful words like tax anticipation. In other words, the United States budget is free to use what is called deficit spending. This is actually important. Uh, when cities and states' budgets get blown up because of things like a pandemic, say, they are hum- they're really hamstrung by, by the laws regarding balanced budget. The only remaining institution that has money is the federal government. This, Podsters, is why some in Congress want to include funding directly to cities and states. In the CARES Act 2, 3, who cares anyway? They're hoping that the next stimulus package and payments and money for is money for small, small businesses and direct payments to uh, citizens and direct payments to cities and states. Because if there isn't any direct payments to cities and states, there's not much money to provide for services. Many of us rely on health care services, family services, police, fire, streets, roads, trash collections. So the need for the U.S. government to use its ability to for deficit spending and provide funding for more than funds just for small business and direct funding to citizens needs to be also funding for the city in states, as a matter of fact, so for their direct needs. Otherwise, if there is a hell below, we're all going to go, as Curtis Mayfield once sang. Anyway, there needs to be federal money directed towards the states and the cities so that we don't have a budget hole that we can't fill. So in Philadelphia in 1990, 91, 92, 93, you still got to find a way to balance the budget where deficit spending was not and is not an option. The federal government simply was not going to give Philadelphia money, not for the matter of not not for this, not for that. And neither was the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania, which is, well, that's the Commonwealth. And uh, not for not, not for that, not for anything. Not for not? I love that. Not for not, I meant to say. Not for not. Anyway, so here it is. On the federal level, you can spend when needed. On the local or state level, you got to find a way to raise revenues to balance the budget. In 1991, 92, and 93, Philly was in the same position as we will be in if the federal government and Congress do not approve direct funding to the cities and states, which believe it or not, is a long way to take you potsters back to 1991, 92, and 93. The first thing that comes to my mind, Joe, is the Pennsylvania Intergovernmental Cooperation Authority. The first thing? That's the first thing. Wow. I'm impressed. Joe, I have a boring life, and you know You've been doing your homework, young man. Anyway, that's also known as PICA, and it uses or gets rid of the term tax anticipation, but it also has to do with Philadelphia's budget deficit back in those days. Joe, I've noticed you and the Potsters uh, have an unhealthy habit of rolling your eyes or just glazing over whenever I mention the word tax deficit. 
Don't forget Yoni. All right, we'll throw that in. I was saving that for later. But this has been an ongoing theme of MTBW. Because if you don't have money, you can't fix shit. Or I guess I can't say that. Might as well walk if you don't have the money, as they say. Things and and things again like streets, water lines, pick up trash. You can't begin to address poverty, neighborhood health centers, playgrounds, you name it. But uh, health and welfare for us city and former city employees, benefits, police and fire. They're the types of programs that make a city an attractive place to live. I know this is all well and good, but the rule is you got to balance the budget. You have a number of people, as we talk, 25% living below the poverty line. And they were fools, didn't have the ability to coax kids to go to school. Business were... We're either leaving the city because, well, the taxes talked about, left because the job base was growing in the suburbs, and the regular old jobs that Philadelphians had for centuries, or certainly since the turn of the century, which was manufacturing, and they left the city too. What the city was faced with was this budget deficit, and the way they decided that they were going to try to fix it is what was known as tax anticipation. It's too exciting, too exciting. Tax anticipation, in case you want to know, was used heavily in the 90s and to some extent used today. So boiled down to a nub, when Philly's annual budget is draft, the city generally has to fund all things and pay for them. If not, well, then things get ugly and services get cut, like I said, or eliminated. Shit happens. So the answer was tax anticipation. Okay, Joe, let me take a stab at explaining this before you take your nap. Please do. <laughs> Please do. The anticipation. The I got worms on my tongue. When the mayor, the budget director, the president of city council... Uh, or someone in council leadership, city controller, and some others initially get in the room and figure out how to pay for things they ain't able to pay for because they ain't got money for. The leaders simply agree that they don't have the money currently. But, and that, this is a big but, they anticipate, emphasis, anticipate getting the money from taxes that they will receive. Basically, the better or the rosier the tax anticipation, the better we look. By the early 90s, the tax anticipation method of balancing the city's budget collapsed. I know, that's a shock. And it became obvious to not only the leaders of the peer, but also the governor and the legislators of the Pennsylvania House and Senate, business community. Uh, So tax anticipation was like a dull knife. It just wasn't cutting. So banks would be where we would go or the cities would go to get money one way or the, the other. But they looked at the city, they looked at the city's books and they decided that they were not in love or in like of tax anticipation as a method to pay back loans. Banks decided that charging interests higher than you know payday loans are not going to get their, their loans paid. So in other words, in 91, 92, 93, we were on the verge of bankruptcy, which is a disturbing term to you and I, Joe, but a I don't think it bothers Donald Trump much. Basically, we ran out of gimmicks. We had no money to borrow in the short term, no money to plan for the future. When this stuff is happening, people like to use the term, a lot of moving parts. So stay with me. Sounds like the Philadelphia Eagles. Go ahead. I'm with you. 
But the bottom line is that we had to figure out how to stop the Ponzi scheme, stabilize the city. Joe, nowadays we could put it on Amazon and sell the city. But Amazon back then in the 90s, that was only a jungle in South America. And that may be where our uh, listener is, Joe. You know, it's all about demographics, baby. At that point, the city was three quarters of a billion dollars in debt. How did Pica come to save the day? Glad you asked. I, I was. Philly was a drown was drowning and going under, and all anybody would give us was a glass of water. Like that? Google punch, right? Google punch for the list. So here's what happens. Mayor Good was along initially for the ride or the initial planning. But after the election, it was Rendell, who was the mayor, Jonathan Seidel, who was the city controller, the president of city council, who I think was Anna Verna, uh, but then became John Street somewhere along the way. He became the speaker, not the, the, the I guess it's the president of city council. And then the speaker of the Pennsylvania House, Bob O'Donnell, was involved in PICA or Pica, or whatever. And of course, we can't forget the Vince. Vince Fumo and the city's two lobbyists. Yes, boys and potsters. The city has lobbyists. As far as I can tell, they do a pretty good work for the city. The lobbyists at that time were two gentlemen, one named Joe McLaughlin, I'm not sure where Joe came from, and another was a former state senator, Steve Wojak. And Wojak, I believe, was from the Northeast. And a former state rep, right? Sure. Was he a rep or a senator? Uh, I'm not sure, but he he was certainly from the Northeast and a, an elected official before he left to become a lobbyist for the city. Of course, they needed a couple of really sharp tax and municipal bond attorneys. Joe, if you're wondering, this was not within bombastic Bushkin's field of expertise. Uh, yeah, well, I assume that one. But there was also a state senator, I think we talked about this, Joe, from either Chester or Berks County named Earl Baker. Did we ever figure out where Baker came from? Chester. He was just a county guy. Yep. Yeah. Okay. And somehow, some way, Earl Baker decided to help. And I'm not sure, but I think it was, uh, I don't know, I'm not going to speculate on that, a Republican state senator from Chester County out in Philadelphia. My out-of-the-box thinking is he wanted to do the right thing and by helping the largest city in the Commonwealth. But State Senator Baker is the guy who sold it to the Republican legislators. And I don't believe that Baker was really in on the initial planning with the city officials and the, the tax people and Wojak and McLaughlin. But he still had to sell it to the state senators who, of course, was dominated by the Republicans. So what Piper was not an easy sell. What it was designed to do was to create a state, not a city agency, a state agency agency to borrow money through the issuance of bonds with the state, not the city, committing to guaranteeing the bonds. I can see that because they do such a great job with the Fish and Game Commission, which they really do. I'm not being facetious. They, why not do it with Philadelphia's taxes? Well, we didn't have anything. So to make it all work, PICA was mandated to okay the city's budget and create a five-year plan. The composition of the board was sticking point, who was going to do what, who was going to sit on the board in the city, but the city had to commit to take action on its own to show that they were working in good faith so that the PICA could move forward in selling their, the bonds, which was going to help. plan was to 
help stabilize the city financially. Aside from the fact that most of the legislatures didn't like Philadelphia, they required the mayor, who, of course, as we've said, Rendell, to do something to show that they were, we, the city of Philadelphia citizens, were committed to PICA. He committed to do what Green did, and he cut city the city workforce. He cut it back, and he basically cut, cut it on health and welfare benefits. He cut back on police and fire overtime. A lot of the things the city needed to do had to be approved by council. John Street was the president of city council then. Just a quick word about John Street. I was wrong about him uh, regarding a number of things. Mayor Street, uh, anyway, the circumstances involving the FBI planning the bug in his in his office remained unresolved. In previous com- podcasts and generally talking with people, I made the mistake, judged a book by its cover. I was wrong in my perception, Mayor Street. And yes, Potsters, I do prepare. And I spoke, as I said, with a fair amount of people who worked with Mayor Street. And they described him as a man who, who knows the devil is in the details. And he was helpful in the planning for PICA. And obviously, he's a good politician because he was elected twice. And back then, during the planning, he understood that Randell really would have what he was going to propose was going to draw a lot of pushback from some members of council, the unions, community groups, those things into account. And he knew that the only way Pica was going to fly in Philadelphia was to let everyone have their say. How did he do that? The only way he really could, which was he had hearings, councilmatic hearings. People got their say. Some of some of the things that developed from the hearings, uh, not a lot, got considerable consideration, not cons- considerable consideration. I like that. And and in, in one way or another, and I don't know how, what was in or what was out, but it was working in street like everyone else in the room initially, got PICA approved through the city, with the city making the sacrifices. And just, you know, keep in the front of your mind what was being created was, and I've said it before and I'll say it again, a state agency to sell bonds to help bail out the city. The agency, again, is called the Pennsylvania, Pennsylvania Intercooperative Agency. It is not a Philadelphia agency. And the bottom line is without the state creation of PICA, banks and other lending institutions simply were not going to lend us money. We really had nothing that would make these investors, banks, whatever, believe that we could back up and pay off the bonds, let alone with interest. Once the the lenders and the banks saw that the state was going to back this up, believed then that the money for the bonds was going to be created by PICA was going to be paid back, they trusted the state. They knew that the state had at least a decent record paying things back uh, as opposed to Philadelphia's. Even I knew Philadelphia you had a problem with that. The bottom line was the PICA was approved by the Pennsylvania Senate with the leadership of State Senator Baker, again, from outside the city, and it was signed into law. And I think it was Governor Casey who signed it into law, but I'm not clear on that. Anyway, also to be clear, and Casey Potsters are fuzzy on the Casey name, this Governor Casey is not U.S. Senator Bob Casey. Governor Casey is or was a senator with Senator Casey's father, and he was the one, I believe, 
who signed it. Philadelphia made the sacrifices and they were required to get the thing off the ground. Five-year plan was developed and it keeps a pretty sharp eye on the city's books. The Pica board continues and it has been a success. So basically what I think was Pica had nothing to do with the city uh, in terms of the sale of bonds. Uh, but the sacrifices were spread out by Rendell. There were cutbacks, except for there were 123 people who were fired. And uh, it was from the parking authority. So I'm sure they got their jobs back at some point. But that was the only firing, direct firing that Rendell did. As to the PICA and its dealings with the funding for schools or the school district, just know in your mind the school district had nothing to do with PICA. They have their own budget, which remains as it always is, on the brink of financial insolvency. Insolvency. How do you like? I can anyway brink of disaster. That issue was addressed in the next century with Act 36 or 46. Remember, uh, I am not a number <laughs> unless it involves my money. I think that's the legend of Pica. At least that's the story I'm sticking with. And to again quote the eminent philosopher Charles Barkley when he said, I may be wrong, but I don't think so. Joe, let's wake up. We're done with tax anticipation. Oh, okay. I can wake up and pay attention now. Appreciate that. But uh, Pete, aren't we in the future? We're, we're going to bring for season two, a couple of other experts who may also talk about PICA. Pika yes. Pika. Well, and one of the pers- people that I think we are going to be bring back, at least he has agreed to, would be Mike Mash who was there afterwards, but certainly was part of the implementation. I forget who's who are the other guests that we've lined up and haven't yelled at us and said no under no circumstances. Well, we will out John Cromer, who has been very interested in our work and is considering coming on. He was the former community and economic development guy under Mayor right down. Right. in the 90s, yeah. So that he will have a probably a little different detailed perspective than my overview of PICA. I'm not sure who else is. Ken Finkel is not is probably going to come on, but not to talk about PICA. Correct. Uh, with Ken Finkel, we'll talk about, it'll be worked out, but we'll talk about how Philadelphia's politicians dealt with the cultural institutions that make this city such a great place here. Philadelphia is a great place. Just don't ask any Philadelphians. Speaking of which, Joe, there is one thing that I want to I want to say before we wrap things up. The other day, I saw a letter to the editor. I think it was in the Inquirer, and this was a couple of weeks ago. And you know how the Inquirer and the papers do this wrap up about, well, they did it for 2020. Anyway, the letter was from a resident in Washington D.C. She wrote. And I'm going to quote, the great thing about Philadelphia is you literally can't insult them. In Philly, they take any attempt to insult them as either a compliment or an offer to fight. So, Joe, let's quit with that. 